Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Rob Carpenter, CEO and founder of Valiant AI, a conversational AI platform that's raised over $15 million in funding. Rob, thanks for chatting with me today. Hey, I'm happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, no problem. So before we begin talking about what you're building there at Valiant, let's start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background. Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, I've been an entrepreneur my whole life. I love the idea of building, growing companies. It's an incredible avenue to wealth generation. So very much was, uh, you know, lawn mowing business in high school. I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and I uh, feel like that kind of changed my life a little bit. So started an advertising company in college. I had a real estate business afterwards. And my company before Valiant was a custom software development company. Amazing. Now to jump into Valiant, in simple terms, what's the company do? So we build conversational AI platforms for the enterprise. Think about Siri, Alexa, Google Home. But instead of being a kitschy consumer product, this is a mission-critical, enterprise-driven product. And so we focus on industries that are struggling from a labor standpoint and need help with automation. And so our first primary industry is quick-serve restaurants or fast food. And we automate the process of greeting customers in the drive-thru, answering questions, taking their order, and injecting it accurately into the point-of-sale system. And we're hoping to take some pressure off of an industry that's facing a labor shortage in the 1.7 million range. Wow. And what's the experience like as you know the restaurant customer there? And, and how do you deal with the technology not working? I don't know if that's been your experience, but my general <laughs> experience with you, Alexa and Siri is... Yeah, you know, maybe like 60% of the time, but sometimes I ask you know, Alexa to play a song and you know, she reads me the weather. Um, how do you deal with issues like that? Brett, what are you talking about? Technology works perfectly the first time every time and there's never, ever an issue. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the funny thing, uh, Alexa just went off as I said that. I just heard her in the background. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, did you want me to play Backstreet Boys for you? Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's really, really hard. We've been at it for about five years now. And since I've started the company, we've seen somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 team, well-funded, well-intentioned companies try and fail in this space. In fact, before we even got started, both Google and Microsoft tried and failed to build an enterprise-grade conversational AI system. And the reality is, it's just, it's extremely hard. And the core challenge is that within conversational AI, for anybody that doesn't understand the space, there's three really key components. There is speech-to-text, which translates the audio or the waveform from the customer into a readable text. There is natural language processing or natural language understanding, which then reads the text like a human would do and pulls out the intent. And then the third and final component is a dialogue manager that says, now that I know what the customer's intent is, what should I do? Should I add this item to the order? Should I tell them it's not available? Should I ask them if they want a combo? And then I'm going to respond back to the customer using text-to-speech. And I might say, okay, I added that cheeseburger. Would you like to make it a combo? That experience that I just described with speech-to-text, natural language processing, the dialogue manager, and responding back to the customer we call a turn. 
And you can see, and to your point of, you know, Alexa not working well for you, you have to be as close to possible as 100% with speech to text, and then as close to 100% as possible with natural language processing. And then the same situation with the dialogue manager to then be able to respond accurately to the customer. And that in and of itself is extremely hard. Where our problem gets exponentially more challenging is that unlike your consumer device, where you really are just sharing one intent, play this song, tell me the weather, set a timer, we're actually trying to carry on the conversation like a human. So we will see that on average, we will have 5 to 15 turns per conversation. So you have to be as close to 100% as possible across each of those nodes. And then you have to be as close to 100% as possible five to 15 more times. And so the problem just gets exponentially harder to not have a single mistake in any one of those singular intents or interactions with the customer. And then it's a bit of a pressure cooker on both sides because you're trying to have those 15 turns 100% accurate. And you're trying to do all of that in about 60 seconds to keep the customer moving through the drive-through. And so that's why it's taken us longer than we thought it would. And that's why we've seen so many companies fail in the space that have tried to build this product. That makes sense. And I feel like what happens or what I've seen personally as a consumer, you know, sometimes you'll see these types of things like self-service checkouts, right? And then you try it one time, it doesn't work. And then I won't want to go back next time. So I'm guessing for you, it's very high stakes, right? To make sure that every one of those experiences is a positive one. Absolutely. And so what everybody does in this space and kind of the guilty little secret is that everybody uses some form of call center backup where some human somewhere is listening to the flow of the conversation. And when the AI makes a mistake on you know one of those three intense times 15 different turns, they can then step in and correct it. So you're submitting as accurate of an order as possible to the point of sale system so that the customer can pull forward, pay and get their food. And the key for us and everybody else in the conversational space and in the broader kind of consumer facing AI space is how do we get that backup out? Because that hurts the unit economics and the profitability. And we see this in other AI spaces like self-driving cars. How can you have a self-driving taxi that can get a customer from point A to point B without requiring a safety driver or somebody in a remote operations center that can take over in the event of a problem? Because the second you have somebody sitting there and watching the entire car ride, you know, planning to get involved when there's a problem, you are now kind of blowing up your cost model. And so this is really, you know, especially with some of the market volatility we've seen over the last few months, a lot of what's going on is everybody's pivoting and focusing on how can we get this system as accurate as possible. Got it. That makes sense. And when it comes to you know, just AI in general, you, as you are probably well aware, you know, it's a it's a term that seems to be uh, overused and abused a lot, and it's yeah. uh, definitely like a buzzword these days. You know, so how do you separate you know your AI and make sure that people know it's not you know BS? While there's you know these others who are just using it as you know a marketing tool, basically. Yeah, I mean, that's a big challenge. There was a venture capital company based in the UK that did a study of every AI, you know, quote unquote, AI company in the United Kingdom. And what they found was that it was only about 60% of companies had actual AI. So the other 40% were just kind of faking it. And even for that 60%, it was like over half were using just sort of off the shelf 
pre-existing models versus actually being an AI company that was building their own AI technology. So for us, the key thing is, you know, it generally comes down to family offices, venture capitalists, private equity investors that are savvy enough to understand that, understand that distinction and can ask those questions. And then we really get in and we say, okay, here's the areas where we've designed and built our own custom machine learning models, which is what AI is at the end of the day. And here are the areas that we use those machine learning models, and here's how they help the product. So it tends to be a slightly more nuanced kind of one-on-one discussion with people that are slightly more familiar with the space. Makes a lot of sense. And in terms of the dream customer, you know, who are those dream customers that you're targeting today, and, and what's the pitch to them? Yeah, so right now we are only working with quick serve restaurants that have 500 locations or more. And generally, we're only working with the top 10 brands in the space. Because AI is so complicated, once you have the system dialed in for a brand, you want as much expansion as possible. You know, these systems can take anywhere from a couple of weeks to half a year to build for a brand, depending on the complications in their system, how many different point of sale systems they have, how many different combos and menu items they have, those types of things. And so once we've built a system for someone, we want to know that there's an opportunity to scale it within that organization. Mm -hmm. I imagine, and what we see from most of our competitors in the space is that they're also focusing on this kind of top tier of the industry. I think the top tier will dominate for the next few years. And then I think as technology becomes more refined, becomes more self-serve, we'll see it being able to trickle down and see people with one, two, three restaurants being able to get access and to use this technology. The pitch itself is pretty straightforward. Everybody's got labor challenges. And we plug a hole when your restaurant is understaffed. And then because it's a computer and it's so consistent from an upsell standpoint, we are able to consistently generate additional revenue for the restaurants by just never forgetting to upsell the customer and making sure that we're upselling in the appropriate places. So from the restaurant's perspective, they're filling a gap or major hole in their operations and they're generating more revenue simultaneously. So the the sales pitch is pretty quick and pretty easy and everybody gets it. The key has just been over the last several years getting the technology to a point where it's a consistently good experience for everyone. And you know, whenever there's you know, innovative technology, I feel like it can be hard to get someone to change and to adopt. What have you guys done that's you know, helped you succeed at you know, getting these large companies to adopt your technology? Generally, we, you know, from a sales strategy standpoint, it's the franchisees that reach out to us. Um, they'll hear about us from an event, you know, online, through a podcast, things like that. They're, you know, the franchisees, they're the ones that are actually hiring and managing people. They're the ones that feel the pain. And so... Generally, since our inception, the franchisees have been the ones that have been reaching out to us and have been the advocates and the ones that need this technology. We have found that the larger corporate entities had been the ones that tended to put the brakes on, slow things down, crush uh, projects and innovation at time. I will say I don't necessarily hold that against them. I mean, they have a brand to protect and it's understandable to be wary of how consumers are going to adopt to the new technology. I will say, though, that about two years ago, once COVID really started to flare up, everybody really began to struggle from a labor standpoint. And so we saw the brands, the the, the parent entities themselves stop being blockers and really become more helpful because they truly understood the pain that their franchisees were going through. And so the last 18 to 24 months, we've really seen these corporate entities step up 
and, you know, roll their sleeves up and really get in the weeds to make these systems work for their franchisees where previously they had been a little bit more of a blocker. Got it. And this is probably a dumb question, but I feel like I've been seeing the term quick serve restaurants everywhere lately. But whenever I've seen that, I always just think to myself, is that just fast food and they're just rebranding it because of, you know, supersize me and you know, all the negative <laughs> stuff about fast food? Like, is that accurate or like, is that different from a fast food restaurant? No, quick serve restaurant and fast food, in my mind, are synonymous. I can't necessarily get into the marketing genus of where words came from or when they came from. But quick serve restaurant, for as long as I've been in the industry, is how the industry recognizes itself. Fast food is more of what the consumers have labeled and sort of put on the businesses. But in my point, it's it's a little bit of a potato potato. But you are seeing absolutely, especially fast casual, try to move into the quick serve space. And in my mind, what really differentiates it is the drive through lane. And I think a good example would be Chipotle or Starbucks. You know, more than five years ago, you always had to get out of your car and walk into a Chipotle or walk into a Starbucks. Now, the vast majority of new Chipotles and new Starbuckses have to come with drive through lanes. And they've done a lot to speed up their operations so that they can get people into and out of the restaurant as fast as possible. And so I think... Because that's where the voice interface kicks in and that's where our opportunity kicks in, we've actually been seeing our market grow over the last two years as more restaurants have tried to become quick serve restaurants. Makes sense. And is there a point where your technology ever gets to the point where it really truly sounds like a human and they wouldn't be able to tell that it's not a human? That's actually a really interesting question. So that falls under text to speech. And human-sounding text-to-speech is here. Of all the AI ML problems, that's probably the closest that you could say that's a solved problem. So we had a human-sounding voice, gosh, almost three years ago at this point. So that's not a challenge. We still keep a slightly computerized voice Mm -hmm. from a psychological standpoint because the consumer, when they're talking to it, then realizes it's a computer and they tend to dumb down their speech. Mm. When you try to come across as a human, you just walk into the wild, wild west of human communication and the complexity goes up exponentially. So we keep that just... 10 to 15% computerized ting to it because then people talk to it more like it's an elementary school student and that increases the chances that the order will go through successfully. That makes sense. It's kind of like when you speak to a non-native English speaker. You get rid of the slang, you talk a bit more simple and basic and clear just to make sure they can understand you. Yeah, and you might also be more likely to enunciate, for example. Maybe you speak just a little bit louder, a little bit more directly. All of these things that help to give the person that you're communicating with the highest chance possible to understand you. Makes sense. And what about market categories? When it comes to market categories, do you view it as you're creating a totally new market category? Are you part of an existing one that you're disrupting? What are your views there? I view it as an entirely new market category. So I would look at it in a similar vein as when robots moved into manufacturing. You know, if you've seen any of the updated videos of the Tesla manufacturing plants, it's mind-boggling how automated that experience is. 
And it's not hard to find, you know, video clips from the 50s and 60s from the Ford Motor Plant. And you just see, you know, thousands of people on these manufacturing lines. I would consider that move of robotics and automation into manufacturing to be a new product category. And I think what AI has done is that it has allowed, for lack of a better term, robots to make the next step. Previously, robots had been used to automate physical labor. And we've seen that you know, since the dawn of time, if you think about things like the plow and then getting into tractors. Now what we're seeing is that AI and automation is actually starting to creep into knowledge work, where it could be somebody that's just sitting down in a chair and carrying on a conversation with someone. And that's the new kind of dawn of an era that I think we're seeing for conversational AI. Got it. And, you know, whenever you're looking at technology like this, I think one of the criticisms or concerns is around, you know, is this going to eliminate jobs and, you know, end up with a bunch of people who are out of work? How do you navigate that conversation? And, you know, what are your general views there? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's honestly been a concern since, again, going back to borderline the dawn of time, right? You can go back to like the Luddites, you know, in the United Kingdom, smashing machines that help to make textiles a more automated process. So it's something that people have always been concerned about. And there's nothing wrong with being concerned, but I think it's appropriate to look at it from a more rational perspective. Where I come down on this is that overall economies are dynamic. For better or worse, especially with capitalism, one of the cornerstones is things that can be automated should be automated. And there have been fears, you know, going back to the 1800s, that automation were going to put large portions of the American population out of work. I mean, if you look back at like the 1880s, 1890s, it was something like 95% of Americans were involved in the agrarian industry. You look at 2022 in the United States, and it's like, 1% of Americans are involved in the agrarian industry, but we're not looking at 94% unemployment rates. And the reason for that is that economies are dynamic. And as jobs become automated or go away, new jobs are created. So I think the core thing that everybody needs to focus on is not innovation by itself, mm-hmm. but the pace of innovation and the amount of things that are being innovated on simultaneously. I was really worried five, six, seven years ago that we were going to automate semi-truck drivers. We were going to automate taxi cab drivers. You know, we were going to automate all of this sort of entry-level knowledge-based customer service work. And that if all of those things happened simultaneously, the economy would have a hard time absorbing that. I think what's happened in the interim is that a little bit of the magic shine has worn off of AI. And people are coming to realize that, hey, this is real technology and AI is used in a lot of places, but the pace of innovation is not going to be as fast as we thought. It's actually extremely hard when you get right down to it. AI is actually pretty stupid, uh, which is frustrating, to be honest. And I think it's going to take much, much longer for some of these things to happen. And we're going to see it instead of a dramatic fashion where all semi-truck drivers are automated overnight. We're going to see, you know, in the next two to five years, long haul truck driving down a highway will be automated. And in eight to 15 years, we'll start to see, you know, city-based deliveries becoming automated. And I think that because this pace of innovation is going to be slower than what a lot of people originally thought it was going to be, I think that the economy overall will be able to keep up with this pace of change and new jobs will be created as a result of this innovation. 
And I feel like you touched on that a little bit, but a while ago I was reading some article and they had pulled together all of these different you know, newspaper headlines from the past you know, 100 or 200 years. And it was you know, almost comical. It was you know, literally the exact same thing, you know, insert technology here, but about yeah. how this was going to you know, eliminate jobs and you know, the whole world was screwed basically. And you know, time and time again, it was you know, dead wrong. But it's funny that that's become you know, kind of like a, an innovation trope now where it just always circles back to that same idea. Right. Well, and I think it just comes from, you know, humans in general, as much as we like to adventure or think about the future, we actually tend to be a little more weary of innovation and change than we let on, especially in North America. And so I don't think that these types of things are uncommon. I don't think shy away from these discussions. I think that they are healthy and we need to have them, but we need to come at it from a very rational perspective. And to your point, if we take a more rational, holistic, historical perspective, the negative things people thought would happen haven't happened. And the overarching trend has been people living longer, better lives. I don't know about you, but I really enjoy working in an office. I enjoy my warm cup of coffee. I like playing ping pong with my team. I'm pretty glad I'm not sitting out in 95 degree weather picking strawberries. So let's not also assume that innovation when it happens is bad. It does often actually make people's lives better. Totally. And you just touched on that there too. You know, in terms of other countries, are you seeing this technology further ahead in places like Japan? I've always heard Japan's very, you know, open as a society and as a culture to interacting with robots in a way where, you know, Americans tend to feel uncomfortable. So in places like Japan, is this like already widespread and everywhere? Or what does that look like? Yeah, good question. I definitely don't think the Terminator helped us in terms of people's excitement for <laughs> robots and AI. <laughs> Thankfully, the number of questions we've been asked of whether we're cyber dying or not has gone down, which is appreciated, <laughs> which for any movie nerds or not movie nerds, that's the company that actually built the Terminator. So we have not seen, I have not seen significant technical leaps or innovations around conversational AI in some of the Eastern Asian countries. I want to be very careful with generalities, right? But there's a really interesting book by a Chinese man named Kai-Fu Li, who talked about the differences in AI technology between China and the United States. And from his perspective, China had an advantage just around sheer volume of data generated. And that is really, really important. But that the U.S. had a lead from a pure innovation standpoint. And for anybody that doesn't understand kind of the nuances of AI, some of the key ways that people train AI or machine learning algorithms right now is through supervised learning. So a person is sitting at a computer and they are pushing the buttons and pulling the strings in terms of how they're trying to craft this perfect machine learning algorithm to do what they want it to do. And I think we're running into the limits of what's possible with that. And that's part of why this AI innovation curve is going to take longer than a lot of people thought that it would. Mm -hmm. The... I'd call it more of like a holy grail is unsupervised learning, where you let some baby AI listen to a million, you know, recordings of fast food restaurant conversations. And then it comes out on the other end, being able to talk to people about fast food and a human didn't have to do anything. So I think, you know, the United States really has a lead from an innovation standpoint. Some of the Eastern Asian nations have a lead from a data standpoint, but I think we're seeing the limits of what data 
can do. And I think because of that, that's why we haven't seen even countries that seem so much more adept at accepting robots to have significantly surpassed where we are in the United States with conversational AI or robots or self-driving cars. Everybody, generally speaking, around the globe seems to be at about a similar place. And I think Mm -hmm. that's just the limits of where technology is at today. And what was the name of that book you mentioned? AI Superpowers. Oh, okay. Nice. I'll check that out. Yeah, it's interesting. I disagreed with a lot of his assertions in there. But I do think it's a way to enter into the discussion and have more knowledge if people are curious about how AI plays out on a more global playing field. Makes sense. And you know, switching gears here a little bit, let's talk about traction. So when did you officially launch? Well, we're over five years since we launched the company. We took our very first AI fast food order in October of 2018. And as far as I'm aware, uh, and nobody's corrected me yet, we were the very first company uh, to launch in this space and have an AI actually take an order. Wow. Were you the one who placed the order? (laughs) My head of engineering was the one that placed the order. And he got himself a uh, sausage breakfast burrito. We, uh, we literally have a picture of the half-eaten breakfast burrito on a plaque in our office. It's, <laughs> it's pretty funny. That's awesome. <laughs> and in terms of traction, you know, are there any numbers that you're comfortable with sharing? So right now, we're working with five different brands, all household names, instantly recognizable to develop the technology. Checkers and Rallies is the only one that we can officially talk about uh, scaling the technology with. The AI today is currently taking thousands and thousands of orders by itself. And we expect it to be taking tens of thousands of orders per day by later this fall. So we're definitely in the process of ramping up and scaling the technology. Wow. And if we zoom out to the future, you know, what do you think the future of, I guess, restaurant ordering is going to look like? Is it, are humans going to be totally out of this process, you know, within five or 10 years from now, you know, what do you think that looks like? And then of course, you know, what role are you going to play in shaping that future? Yeah, I do think humans will probably be out of the loop from a place in your standpoint. And my preference is they should be. It is a very monotonous task to ask somebody to stand on their feet for eight hours, you know, saying, can I supersize that? 500 times in an eight-hour shift. That's something that is monotonous, dreary, dull, and that is the perfect use case for technology. I do think we will continue to see mobile ordering pick up in importance. There was a big push for kiosks five years ago. That seems to have kind of flatlined. I mean, people still buy them. They still adopt them. Consumers tend to not pick those systems if there's an open person that they can go and talk to. So I think that's kind of reached its market point. But I do think order ahead, either through delivery or through a mobile app, as you get to the restaurant, will continue to pick up. And I think for everything else, it'll be handled by voice AI systems. And then beyond this space, we will start to see conversational AI seeping into more and more locations. I called my bank last week and their recording was, hey, good news, we have a new system. You can now say whatever you want and we'll route you to the right person. And we've needed that for a decade because the idea of sitting there for five minutes to say like, press one for this, press two for this. When you're like, I need to ask a question about my bill or I want to know why there's a charge on my card. Like I should be able to give you a simple sentence and you should be able to send me to the right person. I shouldn't need to sit through a five minute menu. So those types of things really are beginning to pick up. We'll see those systems continuing to get smarter 
for the bank, you know, right now that system is just quickly routing you to the right person. The next step is it should ideally be able to handle 20%, 50%, 80% of customer calls, you know, hotels. Maybe you don't want to go through, you know, their website or orbits. You just want to call the hotel. You should expect an open-ended AI system to greet you ideally by name, know your preferences, carry on a conversation with you and book you into a hotel room. And so I think we'll just continue to see automation of this sort of repetitive, you know, knowledge-based sort of entry-level customer service work. Very cool. And what do you think the company will look like five years from now? Is the goal just to really dominate the quick serve restaurant space or is it much bigger than that? Definitely much bigger than that. For us, QuickServe has always been a very good market entry point. It's very hard, but you know the ability and the pressure that is created to create a product for this space gives you the ability to then roll a very intelligent, very sophisticated system to other industries. So we'll continue to stick to restaurants for another year or two, but then we very much plan to begin moving into new industries we're looking at healthcare, we're looking at finance, we're looking at retail, we're looking at hospitality. There are a lot of different places that this technology will go. Amazing. Well, unfortunately, that's all we're going to have time for today. Before we wrap, if people want to follow along with your journey as you build this company up, where should they go? Feel free to check us out at valiant.ai. All right, perfect. Well, thanks so much for your time here and look forward to seeing you execute on this vision. It's really awesome what you're doing. Awesome. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day. Yeah, you too.